Hi, I'm Oki, and welcome to Tell Me About Your Book. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Tell Me About Your Book. I just want to say I'm really, really stoked here to be sitting with an author who's published so many books that are so crazy and interesting. His name is Stephen Levi, and the book that we're focusing on today is about something that's so cool. But I want to say hi to him first. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm here for you. What can I do for you? <laughs> I love this energy, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for being here. First of all, I love the fact that you're in Alaska. You've written so many books about just where you are, but let's talk about the book that we're highlighting today that you published last year. It's called Bonfire Saloon. That's correct. I read that it's about Alaska gold rush stories. Can you tell me more about this book? I need to give a little bit of a background here. You have to understand that the Alaska gold rush is one of the least researched subjects in American history. Oh, wow. If you pull up the Alaska gold rush on the uh, on Wikipedia, you're going to get the Klondike. The Klondike gold rush took place in Dawson in the Yukon Territory of Canada, and it lasted about 14 months. Okay. The Alaska gold rush lasted 40 years, and it's all over Alaska. Alaska is twice the size of Texas. And when you start looking at stories out of the Alaska gold rush, there aren't any. And there aren't any for a bunch of reasons. The biggest reason being that a lot of the people who came up to Alaska and participated, if they found gold or didn't, they left. So what happens is when I write my books on the Alaska gold rush, I have to go all over the country to find out where they left their diaries, where they left their letters and stuff like that. And before the Internet, you really couldn't do that. But right. now with the Internet, there's a lot of stuff that I can get a hold of that I couldn't have gotten a hold of 25 years ago. So you have to understand that there are three different parts of, of the Alaska gold rush that are completely different. In Nome, oh, wow. the gold rush, the gold is on the beach. So what happens is the people are out there panning the beach. But you can only pan for 120 days because after that, the snow settles in. I'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. The second part is of the gold rush is in Fairbanks, and in Fairbanks, they're dredging. That means that they get a large ship, and they go out onto the river, and they drop these gigantic buckets into the water, and they scoop up the soil from at the bottom of the river, and from that, they get the gold nugget. So it's completely different than Nome. Oh, wow. And then you talk about Juno, and in Juno, the gold is in the mountains, and so you have to tunnel your way into the mountains to find the gold. So what happens is you talk about the Alaska gold rush, you're talking about three completely different ways that people are actually looking for gold. And since we're talking about the Bonfire Saloon, for those people who are listening, it's important that you take a look at the, a map of Alaska. Because what you will see is you will see the Aleutian chain just that leans, that goes from Alaska all the way over to uh, toward Japan. It's extremely important that you understand that, that is, that's the Aleutian Islands. And the Aleutian Islands have a warm water current that's on the south side of the Aleutians, but there is no current on the other side, on the Bering Sea side. Oh, so wow. what happens is you start talking about Nome. What happens is that you can take a boat to Unalaska with no problem because there's no ice. But on the other side of the Aleutians, it's frozen 15 feet thick with, with ice wow. from the Aleutians all the way to Nome. That's a thousand miles. 
So when you start talking about Nome, you have to understand that when winter comes, there's a thousand miles of ice between Nome and uh, open water. And if you're a Nome, after September 15th, you're stuck there until the next June. And that's key to understanding the Bonfire Saloon. These people are stuck in Nome. Wow. And you can't make any money. And so you have to be very careful with the money you have, the gold that you have, because you have to make it through till June. So on the Bonfire Saloon, these people, this is set March 3rd, 1903. These people are in the saloon. They're stuck there. They're stuck there for eight months. And all of the names in the Bonfire Saloon, those are authentic names. I got those from the Alaska Gold Rush. And all of the events that they're talking about, I got out of the newspapers and the federal documents. So what happens is you're looking, you're reading about real people and you're talking about real events and it's narrative poetry, which is fantastic because no one else has done that. <laughs> and you, it's hard, very hard to explain to people in the lower 48 distances because they're, in the lower 48, you talk about 100 miles. People say, oh, well, that's really not far. You know, that's just two hours by car. Well, right. When you start talking about Alaska, what happens is a thousand, it's a thousand miles from Juneau to Unalaska, a thousand miles. Wow. And there are no roads. That's crazy. Honestly, Stephen, I feel like, I mean, I definitely want to dive more into Bonfire Saloon, but just listening to you talk about this history, I could listen about this for hours or even any history on uh, the other books that you have. You mm. you would be an amazing lecturer or even like a professor. Uh, <laughs> Maybe you were I'm, at one I'm point. A, I'm, available, I'm available to talk about my books anytime. <laughs> the thing to understand about Alaska is nobody has done anything on Alaska. There's only been one movie on Alaska. It's been done seven times and two times, the last two times with John Wayne was called North to Alaska. Oh. And everything else, all of the other stuff on Alaska is not, there, there's nothing there. Nobody has done anything. There's all these fantastic people and incidents and adventures, and it's been completely ignored. You know, and I'm very, very pleased because I went to the newspapers and I went to the federal documents. And so when you read Bonfire Saloon or any of my Alaska Gold Rush uh, stories, particularly my Alaska Gold Rush history, this is stuff that nobody has seen. Ever. Oh, wow. Can I like shout it to the top of the world that people need to get their hands on this book? This is amazing. I mean, you've told me a lot already about the skeleton of this book, you know, the Alaska Gold Rush. What more can I expect from this book as far as like the human side of it? Are we reading also like about families, about how it affected relationships, things like that? It's the last era. Don't forget, the Alaska Gold Rush finishes in World War One, And gotcha. every place in America in World War One, there are the police, there are the fire department, they have government, they have city councils, everything. Everybody is civilized in the lower 48. The Alaskans refer to uh, the other states as the lower 48. You know, not Hawaii, Hawaii is the 49th, but everything, <laughs> everything, everything in the continental United States is set by, 19, by 1920. What you have to understand is that a lot of these towns in Alaska, they didn't have the troop, they didn't have policemen, they didn't have firemen, they didn't have any kind of law and order it was kind of like what the community wanted to do. And you get a place like Nome, what happens is in Nome, people don't understand, Nome is about 12 blocks deep and about 20 miles long, because that's what you have to do. You have to be along the coast to be able to get the gold. 
20 miles. There are no policemen. There are no firemen. Everybody is out there scrambling. You know, the con men are out there and the robbers and the thieves and the good people. It's a real mix. It's so hard to play because people talk about, well, you know, the gold rush, the California gold rush. Yeah, but there were United States marshals there and there were miners' councils there. And there was a way if you really needed some help, you could go to San Francisco and get, you know, armed men to come out and help you. You couldn't do that in Alaska. You were, you right. were on your own. How was it writing this? I know you had to do a lot of research and a lot of approach in a way that no one's done this. So you have to kind of give it given it its justice to really show like the struggles or show the challenges that went through all this during the gold rush. 40 mm. years span at that. How was it writing for you? I, I refer to myself as a writer who's in the weeds is what happens is I really want to know what did happen. I'm not looking to write a fantastic story. I'm not looking for a murder mystery or a, a romance. I want to know what actually happened. And the way that you do that is you sit down and you read the newspapers and then from the newspapers, you find out these guys were arrested. And then you look at the look at the court cases. And then you look at the letters and the diaries. And so what you do is you're not putting together a story that where you sit down, just read the newspaper and say, oh, that's great. I'll just use it. What happens is you want to get as much as you can together. And some of the stories you really have to dig out. One of the stories that I have to that I dug out was there's a guy named Wilson Meisner, and you can find books on him. He's a real con man. And when he went to Nome, what he would do, he didn't have any money. And so what he was working as a bartender. And back in those days, it's hard. Once again, you have to hardly understand that in Alaska, there is no money. You're in the lower 48 right. in the 1910. If you wanted to go someplace, you could you had cash. You could go to the bank and you could get money that the bank had. You could get gold, you could get gold coins. In some cases, you can get American. Dollars and not that many. And no, there's none of that. You all have to do is gold, like pinches of gold. Just picturing it, it just seems so absurd. But oh, it was reality. These, <laughs> these miners, these miners in all parts of Alaska, these guys aren't paid with cash. These guys are paid with what's called script. They just give you little pieces of paper that said this piece of paper is worth $20. If people were furious because you can take the $20 and you can take it to a store in Nome or in Juneau or in Fairbanks and you can get $20 worth of goods. But you can't take that $20, get on a, a steamship and go to Seattle, because when you get to Seattle, that piece of paper isn't worth anything. Right. And it's a real problem is because if you're in Alaska and you've made a lot of money, how do you get your money out? Because you've got a bunch of paper that's good in Alaska, but it's not good anyplace else. Anyway, what this guy would do is he'd get up in the morning and before he went to work, he'd put syrup in his hair. He just put lots of syrup in his hair. Uh, and then okay. during the during the during his you know, his shift, he's basically, you know, getting paid with the uh, pinches of gold dust. And so he's putting pinches of gold dust in the, which basically is the cash register. And every once in a while, he's running his fingers through his hair. And at the end of the night, he goes home and he shampoos his hair. Yeah. And this guy's <laughs> making more money shampooing his hair than he is being paid to be the bartender. You couldn't do that in any other place in America. <laughs> you couldn't do that in any other gold rush. And this guy's a real con man. This guy convinced uh, he convinced the locals that he should be a United States Marshal. They said, OK, fine, because no one is stupid enough to be <laughs> a United States Marshal in a boomtown. And so he's kind of the assistant United States Marshal. But he knows all of the crooks because he's a bartender. <laughs> these guys, these guys go out and they steal forty thousand dollars in gold. Forty thousand dollars. Forty thousand dollars 
and then is around $10 million today. These guys, these guys are being chased by the Canadians and they go to Nome. And the place that they go is this is Wilson Meisner. They go to Wilson Meisner's house and he hides him in his attic. Okay, so he's got these bad guys and these $40 million in his attic. And then he goes out and he gets a posse to go looking for the guys that are in his attic. (laughs) Okay, and they go looking all over. Of course, they don't find them. The guys were never caught. And it's really amazing that that $40 million was never found. And Wilson Meisner leaves and he goes to Hollywood and he begins to produce movies. And if you know Hollywood, he was one of the owners of the Brown Derby. And the Brown Derby is one of those places where the um, the movie stars gathered. So if you really wanted to go see a movie star or cut a deal, you went to Brown Derby. One of the owners of the Brown Derby is Wilson Meisner. He's getting wow. gold from the Alaska Gold Rush. Wow. If you live in New York, Madison Square Gardens, the money for Madison Square Gardens came from Nome. You know, but you talk to people in New York, they say, well, you know, Alaska, you know, it's a middle of nope. Yeah, but our money... <laughs> You know, this is, you know, since I've got a moment here, you have people in the lower 48 really have no concept of how much money comes from Alaska. Trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and all kinds of natural resources have left Alaska. I can imagine. We Alaskans don't even get a, a, a thousandth of a percent of that. That's incredible to even hear that. That's horrifying, actually. But man... But to read a part of the history with this book, just that alone, that's really fascinating. Well, it's the, it's there, you know, and you just have to be able to sit down. And because when I started this, you started reading the newspapers in these large, you know, you were actually reading the newspapers, but that's changed. And then it was on microfilm. Right. And microfilm made it easier. Those. And now you can actually read it on the Internet. Right. You know, and so I think what's happening for a lot of people in the lower 48, and I'm not just talking Alaska, I'm talking about small towns across America. All of a sudden, you've got access to the newspapers of your town on the Internet, and you can go back and read stories, you know, from 100 years ago. And if you are a writer, let me give you some good advice. And that is that all of the stories that you've heard when you're growing up, you got from your parents and grandparents. Okay, and those stories are from their lifetime. So if you want something new, go back 100 years, because these are the stories in the newspaper that your grandparents never heard. So if you're looking for something new, go back 100 years, because there's all kinds of fantastic things in the newspaper. I want to say thank you for saying all this, because I've always been fascinated with that part of the history, like the human side of the history. So I've always asked people, like, so what did your grandparents do for their job, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, what was their upbringing like as far as what was their father's work and things like that. And it was incredible to hear the type of jobs that they were doing and how long they worked that job for. And especially nowadays with the newspaper articles, a lot of times my husband would be like, those, that's not real. That's just made up story. But I don't think we have that attitude with the stories way back then. You know, at least for me, I believed in everything. (laughs) Another thing to do is to start going to photographic archives because more and more states or museums are putting up uh, pictures that they have. And for the first time, you are seeing photographs that no books would print. Why? It's because, well, it's just not good enough to, uh, to print. We can only print 15 photos. We have to get the 15 photos. 
But you part getting taking a look at the pictures that are actually there. You know, I mean, like you go to Alaska and you see all of these pictures of these camps, and a lot of them you look at them saying, "My God, you know, I couldn't live like that." But these right. people did. You know, and these right. are pictures that are available to you, and you can doesn't cost you anything. It just costs you the, uh, the the time to find it. I will send you a website that I use that where oh. you can pick up any newspaper in any state in any year, and you can pull it up, and it's free. So if you I'm say, so man, I, I would really like to know what was going on here in Tuscaloosa in 1904 <laughs> on April 5th, and you can tap it in and it'll pull it up. And you can also search by name. So what happens is you're looking for my great great grandfather, and I think his name was George Harrison Elvis III. And you can tap <laughs> in and they will pull every article that they had in that newspaper will pull up. Oh, that's so much better than having to go down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. You know, I would prefer that. Well, thank you for that. But let's uh, let's get back to you as an author. What can you tell me about you as an author? Because you have so many books. What I try to do, what I uh, let me tell you, I do two things that are that are very easy and complicated at the same time. <laughs> I want to make every one of my books completely different than any other book that I've written. And I want to make it completely different than any other book that I've ever read. Oh, it's, that's brilliant. <laughs> it's very, very hard is because we all think, we're all thinking, you talk about mystery and everybody talks about a murder. So I don't murder people, which makes it very, very difficult is because most of the stuff that's out there that you can do the research relates to murder. Absolutely. Right. Now, so what I do is I look, I do what's called the impossible crime. And what I do is I try to find something that's impossible and I make it possible. Okay. Give you a good example. For those of you that, that don't know, I don't know California geography. San Francisco is on a peninsula mm -hmm. and the Golden Gate Bridge runs from San Francisco to Sausalito, which is on the mainland. That's what the Golden Gate Bridge is. Okay. So in my book, The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound, what happens is I have a bank robbery in San Francisco and the bank robbers want to get out of town in a Greyhound bus. And the cops say, you want a Greyhound bus to get out of San Francisco? We'd rather have you in a Greyhound bus than in the bank building. So sure, we'll give you a Greyhound bus. So they get a Greyhound <laughs> bus and you get uh, four bank robbers, 12 hostages and $10 million in, in cash. And they get into the Greyhound bus and they start driving around San Francisco trying to lose the police, which is really pretty stupid because if you've been in San Francisco, you really can't get away from the police in San Francisco. Right. <laughs> so now they say they want to go across the Golden Gate Bridge. And the cops say, hey, that's not a problem. We'll just close the bridge off on Sausalito end. We'll let you roll out onto the bridge. We'll close the bridge off on the San Francisco end. Now we've got the the bridge, then we got the Greyhound buses caught out there on the Golden Gate Bridge. We'll send our hostage negotiators out there. This is easy. So they let the Greyhound bus roll out onto the Golden Gate Bridge. They close it off, send the hostage negotiators out. There's no bus. The bus is not on the Golden Gate Bridge. And now the detective has to figure out how can you make a bus disappear off disappear, the Golden Gate Bridge? Yeah. <laughs> If the host, if they are if the bad guys already have the money, why are they holding the hostages? Oh, yeah. So what happens is, you know, I'm trying to do something that is so different that everybody goes, "Whoa!" After they yeah. think about that, that's so witty. You know, but this <laughs> is, you know, this is what I'm trying. I'm trying to take things that are impossible and I make them 
possible. For those of you that are listening, if you want to take a look at some of my uh, shorter stories, go to Medium or go to Readers and Writers Book Club because I have some of my short stories there. And what I do in my short stories, once again, I start with something that's impossible. So I was flying home from uh, San Francisco, you know, a couple of years ago, and I, I got a drink on Alaska Airlines, and they gave me a, you know, the little stir, the little wood stir, and I looked at it, and I'm saying, why would anybody steal uh, toothpicks? Why would anybody steal a toothpick? And I'm going, okay, fine. Now I've got something that's impossible. How? Why would anybody <laughs> steal toothpicks? And so I set up this in the short story. I set up this scenario where somebody would steal 500 pounds of toothpicks. <laughs> and the detective is asked, why are people stealing 500 pounds of toothpicks? And so now the detective has to figure out what can you do with 500 pounds of toothpicks that would end up in a crime. I won't tell you what the crime is, but <laughs> but that's that's the kind of thing that I do because it's completely different than anything Absolutely. that I that I have read anywhere where the detective is asked to come up with he, somebody calls him up and says, we have this strange problem. Somebody sold 500 pounds of toothpicks. And the detective says, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, and why? Let me see if I can exactly. figure out why somebody would steal 500 pounds of toothpicks. <laughs> that um, is so uh, clever and witty. I love it. It's such a nice change of pace. If you want to do well in writing or in fine arts or in singing, what you have to do is you have to come up with something that's different. Because if you come up with something that's, you know, same as everybody else, the competition is unbelievable. Absolutely. You know, but if you come up with something that's completely different, people will say, gee, I had never thought about that. <laughs> Man, you're so incredible. You're such an incredible author. I really love your approach to this. I, I feel like I could keep talking and I, I want to talk about almost every single one of your books because they're so... They're so interesting, but we kind of need to wrap it up, unfortunately. So where can we get your book? The best place, to, the best the best books place to find is uh, authormasterminds.com. And just look for my name. You'll see my picture there. And it's extremely important. If you have a question to ask me, you can find my email there on my picture. Just shoot me. I'm very happy to answer questions for people. And I'm very happy to help you. If you're a writer and you're looking for some ideas, you know, just shoot me an email and I'll tell you what I think. You know, my basic attitude is anything that I can do that helps the writing industry helps me. Oh, well, it definitely helps me be so fascinated with events or things that I usually don't pick up, especially even this Alaska gold rush. Because anytime people think about gold rush, you think about the California gold rush or not even giving Alaska a second thought, honestly, or like you said, like the Klondike um, events. But thank you, Stephen, for coming by today and just giving us a little snippet of your author world. Um, I think this is extremely incredible. And I do want you to continue coming back and telling us more about about your writing journey, about all these books that you've written. So you have no choice. You have to come back. Oh, yeah, no problem. You just let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm here to help. <laughs> Any last minute thing you want to tell us before we go? When in doubt, go original. That's going to help you over the long run. What you do that's an original will move your career forward. Uh, the original. That's great. That's perfectly said. You make it sound so easy, Steve. <laughs> well, you, you know, this is a tough, it is a tough field. But if you want to be successful, you've got to be different, period. 
Uh, and and you got to be nice. That's what I always try to tell okay. people. <laughs> well, I want to say thank you one more time to coming out time for me for this show because you seem to be a very busy man when it comes to all this research and writing all these stories. So thank you again. I had a lot of fun just listening to the history, listening to your approach to your writing, Stephen. Thank you. Anytime. And I will talk to you later then. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me About Your Book. All the other information from this episode will be in the show notes. Please support indie authors as well as indie bookstores. And of course, the other podcasts, Books, Cats, and Snacks, where me and Caddy talk about all things books and, well, her cats too. See you then. Bye.